this spring, uh, last several months really, haven't been great for our family in terms of illness. I don't know why, but it just felt like this unending cycle of getting sick one thing right after the other. We had a, a very nice stomach flu go through our house with all of the joys and perks that go along with the stomach flu. And, um, you know, it's one thing when you get that kind of sick, but it's so sad when it's your kids. And James has, he's always been just tough when it comes to throwing up, and he's just a trooper, you know. And so, you know, he just kind of gets sick and goes back to his business, and he's like, I didn't like that. It's like, I know. And he just like, but he carries on, and he's just so tough about it. And he's to the age now where he never not gets, he doesn't ever like miss, you know. You never have to be surprised about where you're going to find it. It's always in the, you know, he always gets to the bathroom or the trash can or something. But poor Jude. Jude always acts just as surprised when he throws up as anybody else in the room. And, I mean, it's, it's not great, um, but this time around, he was, there was one day I had the kids. I was home by myself. Abby was at work, and I'm just sitting on the couch, just, you know, we're having a nice, easy morning, and James is sitting next to me watching a show on the iPad, and Jude gets up from the couch to walk like he's going to get a toy, and he just kind of stops in the middle of the room and just projectile vomits like three feet across our living room and he was just like you know like whoa this is happening and I'm like oh my gosh what do I do and because even no matter how many times your kids have been through this in that moment when it's totally unexpected there's that moment where you're like you know and you just kind of run back and forth because your body has told you do something but your brain hasn't quite told it what to do just yet and so you're just kind of doing the circles and so you know I'm like okay 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 so I get him and I take him into the bathroom to clean him up and he's, I'm, you know, I'm thinking he must feel really bad or something, but after I get him in the bathroom and I get his, his uh, shirt off, he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, oh, I froze up like a fountain. <laughs> and I was like, yes, you did, son. Yes, you did. And he was just like, whoa, like he was so impressed with himself all of a sudden, like, did you see that? And I was like, you're a boy, and I'm, man, you are all boy through and through, and so that happened this spring, and then that passed, and then we got this uh, cold, this kind of cough that lasted for like two and a half weeks, you know, everybody's hacking, nobody can sleep, the kids are all propped up, they're getting up like ten times a night, you know, it was just a long and drawn out process for us just getting sick this spring, and it, it lasts so much longer because for some reason we can't ever start being sick at the same time, you know, one person gets it, and then the next person gets it, and, and it just stretches it out as we share our germs with each other. And luckily, we haven't ever had like the boomerang where everybody gets it, and then it works its way back through. We haven't done that process yet, thank goodness. Um, but today, I want to talk about that kind of sharing. Not the sharing you encourage your kids to do, you know, with toys, but when the, the way that we oftentimes share things that maybe aren't so great. And so uh, as we finish up our series today, this, the time is now, um, we're going to be uh, going through, kind of continuing on what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Um, there's a ton of history behind the story of, of uh, the book of Haggai, which is what we've been walking through, very short little book of a minor prophet named Haggai. But we're not going to get into all the history today. If you would like to kind of recap yourself a little bit on these uh, messages we've talked about, or if you've missed any of them, you can always go to our website, loemicc.com slash resources, and get all of the Time Is Now stuff that we have covered so far. Um, 
But basically, just the Cliff Notes version of what has happened is um, God had allowed the people of Israel um, to return to Jerusalem that had been kind of destroyed and flattened with the primary command to rebuild the temple of God. And so they go home and they do not rebuild the temple of God. Instead of rebuilding what God has asked them to do, they kind of ignored that and went and started rebuilding their lives. Instead of doing what God had asked them to do, they went off and kind of did their own thing. Now, what was kind of difficult that we talked about last time um, was that God, in this moment, while they were disobedient, he intentionally allowed bad things to happen to them. And he was sending hail and rain and stuff so that all this hard work that they were doing, none of it really amounted to anything. Everything they kept trying to do, even though they were supposed to be doing God's work, everything they tried to do was falling apart. And, it was, and God just made their lives very, very hard. And so last time we got together and we talked about this, we talked about a very difficult truth wrapped inside a beautiful truth, or, or sorry, a very beautiful truth wrapped inside of a tough truth, and the tough truth was that sometimes God intentionally allows pain into our lives, and a lot of people have problems with that. A lot of people struggle with this idea that maybe God would intentionally send things, send painful things into our lives. And I think a lot of us have just convinced ourselves that God's greatest desire is for us to be happy. And we have kind of convinced ourselves that it is God's job to keep us happy, to keep us safe, to keep us healthy. But unfortunately, that is not God's job. And what's funny is I noticed that we have this belief that God is here to make us happy and healthy, you know, this belief that God exists to keep us safe. But how many of us have had that be our reality? Okay, if God exists to make our lives 100% easy and smooth going, how many of us have lived that life? And so we have these kind of opposing belief about God and this opposing reality that we all live, and so these don't really go together. And so when you kind of, these two kind of butt into each other, you're kind of left with only two things, okay? If we've all had this rough life, but God's job is to keep us safe and happy and healthy, either God is really bad at his job, or maybe we've got his job description wrong. And so what we talked about last time, the beautiful truth wrapped inside the tough truth, is that God isn't after humanity's happiness. He's after our hearts. God isn't about your life being totally easy and totally happy all the time. More so, God is concerned with having your heart. God wants you and me to put our complete trust in Him and having a, have a saving relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus, so that we can live forever, forever, and ever, and ever, and ever in heaven. So more than God being concerned about these short little blip of your life, this 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever he gives you, instead of being concerned about this tiny little sliver of time being only happy, God is more concerned about getting you from this little tiny bit of life into heaven where you can have joy forever. And so if God thinks, though, that to help you shake you out of whatever it is you're putting your time and investment and energy into and trust into, if God can use pain to shake you out of that so that you see him and come to him, God will allow pain to come into your life. And that's what we talked about last time. But even though we talk about this fairly regularly, I try to not let too 
long of a time span go before we talk about how hard life is and to help us really understand how God and, and suffering can actually go together. Um, there's still a lot of us who really have a hard time putting those two together. There's a lot of us who still really, really don't want to believe that a loving God would allow pain into our lives. And so for a lot of people, it's easier to kind of jump to one of two places, okay? You know, because reality and our belief that God is good don't line up. So either people jump to the fact that, well, then God just doesn't exist, or that God is bad at his job, okay? Because it's so funny, because we don't ever assume, the average person doesn't ever assume that maybe I've got the picture of God wrong, okay? We just assume that I'm not wrong, God is wrong. And so either jobs, God's not doing his job, or God's not doing it the way I want, and so therefore he doesn't exist. And um, in the last number of years, there have risen a, a group of what I'm going to call angry atheists, um, who just seem to be really mad that there are people who believe in God. And not, not every atheist is angry or snide about their beliefs. Some are very respectful and kind. Um, but there is a group of atheists who feel it is their job to humiliate us out of our belief in God, to ridicule people who believe, to call us stupid and stuff. And um, I thought it was so funny a few years ago I heard uh, a minister from Dallas, his name is Matt Chandler, he said, uh, the two tenets of angry atheism is there is no God and I hate him. And he said, it, and, and so he said it doesn't make any sense. He's like, because why would you be so angry at a God you don't believe in? Why would you be so angry at this thing that you believe is a fairy tale? And so he's like, no one walks around going, uh, leprechauns, you know? No one's like, oh, that Sasquatch boy, he just burns me, I hate that old Sasquatch. Like, nobody does that because we don't believe in them, and so they don't affect us emotionally in any way. So why, he wonders, are some atheists so incredibly angry at the God they don't even believe in? And so he kind of makes the case that for a lot of people, it's not so much that they're actually truly Really, if you really get down to it, it's not that they're truly believing that there is no God. It's that somewhere deep down they believe there is a God, and they just don't like the way he runs his world. And, and so, because again, we don't want to give up this belief that God exists to make me happy. God exists to, to flatten my road of life so that it's always smooth, always easy, never difficult, no suffering at all. And so we just never, ever, ever want to believe or give up this belief in God being kind of our genie in a lamp. And yet, I know Christians who come to church all the time. We hear this stuff all the time. And sometimes I'm one of these people. And when suffering happens, we get so mad at God. Because why would God do this? Why would God be allowing pain? Why would God allow suffering? Why would God do this? Because even those of us who understand this up here, who understand that, yes, pain is a real part of the world, and yes, pain doesn't mean that God is a big old grumpy meanie who's trying to ruin our lives. We understand it up here. When the pain comes, the pain doesn't hit us here. The pain hits us here. And, and it's hard sometimes to connect the two. And so what I want to help us to do today is appreciate the, what's at stake. Because if you don't understand and appreciate what's at stake, what, what, what's really going to happen if God doesn't grab our hearts through uh, uh, these extreme means? What happens if God just kind of lets us go on with our life, just lets us go on kind of living and believing and doing our own thing? What's at stake when that doesn't happen? Because if you don't understand what's at stake, it's, it's really easy to think that God is mean for sending pain. Because you think, why would he go to such extreme lengths to get 
our attention. Isn't there any other way he could get our attention? You know, in the Old Testament, there were times where he was just like, hey, Moses. It's like, I think I'd probably respond to that. Do I really need a painful, horrible situation? If the sky just kind of opened up and some really deep voice like shook me to my bones and just said, Anthony, stop it. I'd be like, you got it. Whatever you want. Why does it have to be pain? And so in Haggai today, we're going to kind of get a peek at what is really at stake. What is really so dangerous in our lives that would cause God to use pain to shake us so uh, violently like he sometimes does. And so we're going to start in Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, if you got a Bible, awesome. If you want to use your own, great. If you don't have a Bible, um, we got the black ones in the pew there, or the verses will be on the screen, or you can use uh, your favorite mobile app on your phone or tablet. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that black one that's near you, consider that our gift. Take that home and have that. We want you to have a copy of that. You are not stealing from a church. We can do it. Uh, the only uh, danger of taking one of the pew Bibles is um, who knows what has been written in there by children who were uh, bored by me. So you never know what you're going to get in that. So we'll be in Haggai 2. We'll start in verse 11. Now, um, what we're going to read, it's very confusing to kind of follow along, but what it's saying is actually very simple, so we're going to take it slow and break it apart. It's just confusing because it's talking in Old Testament terms that we don't live anymore. So uh, Haggai 2, verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? Okay, pause. We're like, what is happening, right? Okay, you have the priest, this holy person who would go to the, the temple and make sacrifices for their sins, for the sins of the people. Okay, so the priest would sacrifice this consecrated meat, this holy chunk of meat, and they would burn it at times on an altar in the temple. Okay, so you have this guy who is wearing, uh, who is a holy guy. He would often, when they went to the temple to make sacrifices, they would wear their special holy robes, and he's carrying this holy piece of meat. And when it says in the fold of their garment, they had these long robes, and sometimes they would grab the long part of the robe, wrap it over their arm and, and, and hold on to it so it created a sort of a pouch and then they would put the meat in there so they wouldn't drop it because I mean what an idiot you look like if you're carrying the holy meat into the temple and you trip and drop it on the ground you know that's not good and so they had this nice little fold to carry it in and so they would walk to the temple and so he's saying okay if this holy guy carrying this holy meat wearing this holy robe and his, his holy robe touches something else it says stew or bread or some other piece of food does that other thing kind of become holy? Does the holiness rub off of this guy and what he's carrying onto the stuff he touches? And the priest answered, no. The holiness doesn't rub off that way. It goes on, verse 13, then Haggai said, and if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? And so this is the opposite question, um, because in the Jewish law, if you touched a dead body, you became unclean. You became unfit to go into the temple to offer your sacrifices and to do those things. And so um, just as the consecrated meat was super considered super holy, if you touched a dead body, you were considered super unclean, super defiled. And so if it says, so let's say you are defiled by touching a dead body, and then you go to and touch one of these other things, stew or bread or whatever it is, does that thing become defiled? Does kind of the uncleanliness rub off? And he says, yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Uh, let me explain what he's saying this way. Let's say, because again, it's a very simple 
premise here, but the, the words and the illustration, we kind of get lost in it. Let's say I washed my hands, like super duper surgeon before surgery, washed my hands with the my most strong antibacterial soap I could find, and I used a brush, and I got the soap into every crack under every nail, and I killed every single germ on my hands until there was no germs alive. And then just to be extra safe, I dunked my arms elbow deep in alcohol and let them sit there for a while until I was sure every germ on my hands was gone and there wasn't a scrap or a piece of dirt or dust or anything. My hands are as clean as they could get. Okay, so I, I take my ultra-clean hands and I walk over to a plate on my counter that is covered with spaghetti sauce from the night before. And I rub my hands on that plate. Does the plate make my hands dirty or do my hands make that plate clean? That's not rhetorical. What is it? Will my clean hands make the plate clean or will the dirty plate make my hands dirty? Dirty. The clean doesn't rub off. The dirty rubs off. That's the point of what he's saying here. And he goes on in verse 14. Then Haggai says, So it is with this people, and this nation in my sight declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Because they're ignoring God, they're being disobedient. And he's saying at this point in time, everything is, is just bogged down by this disobedience, by this sin in their lives. And he's showing them, he's making this point that sin is like a disease. And it spreads. And he's going even farther to say that sin is kind of like spaghetti sauce. Everything it touches is stained. I got clothes with little dots on them from just stirring the spaghetti sauce, you know, at my house. And it's just like, it's there forever. And as soon as it happens, it's like, well, I'm not wearing this anymore, you know. And because it so soaks into the fabric and the tomato gets in there and it just messes it up. And it's saying sin is like that. Whatever it touches, it defiles. And even more so, he wants to make this very important point that sin is more contagious than righteousness. That sin is more contagious than righteousness. Now, I'm not saying sin is more powerful than righteousness. I'm not saying sin is wiser than righteousness or better than righteousness, but that it spreads more easily from person to person. I mean, we all kind of intuitively know this, that, um, you know, the people you're around, it's almost like whoever the dumbest person in the group is, we all kind of tend to take on the traits of the dumbest person in the group. This is why, if you've ever had kids who were in junior high and high school, you fretted about who they made friends with. And you were nervous about the friends they brought home. And you were nervous when they went to their friend's house because you knew that the worst person would always rub off more on your kid than your perfect angel's behavior would rub off on that dumb kid, right? You knew that to be true. We all know this. For some reason, the, the cleanliness, the holiness, the goodness doesn't spread as easily as the sinfulness, the lack of wisdom, the tr troubling things that we do all the time. Um, Back to kind of being sick. Um, for some reason, when Abby and I started dating, she had like this super immune system. And it just irritated me to no end. I was always the kid growing up who had strep throat all the time. I was always at the doctor's office getting shots. and I mean, I was just always sick, it felt like. And that just always carried on. And I meet her. And so for the when we dated and for the first couple years of our marriage, her immune system was just unbeatable. I mean, it was just ridiculous. She'd be like one day, oh, I think I, got a, I think I got the sniffles. That meant that probably for the next week, I was going to be in bed with a fever and chills. 
And it just, I, I'm like, how dare you, you know? So now you have to take care of me and nurse me back to health. That was her punishment. And so, um, but, what, but guess what's happened as we've been married for now, coming up on eight years, and we've had kids in the middle of that. Her health did not rub off on me. Her good immune system did not, I didn't catch that. But unfortunately, I think over time, my diseases and the diseases of our kids have wore her down because she gets sick just like the rest of us every single time because that's just how it is. Unfortunately, the positive things in life don't tend to be as contagious as the negative things in life. And so what he's trying to tell us here, what God is trying to to get us to understand is how dangerous the situation is to let us just walk around in sin, to let us walk around in disobedience, because it's not just us we're going to get into that mess with. We're going to take everybody with us. And when you've got a whole community like this, the chance of them making it out and coming to their senses on their own, the, the chances of that are like none. There's no chance they're going to do that almost. And so God, because he's not just concerned with their happiness, he wants their heart, he wants to shake them free from the sin that seems to be infecting the people right now. He needs to shake them out of that so that they will trust in him and have life everlasting in him. He will send pain to them to do that. And he will do the same in my life and your life. Because God knows how dangerous and nasty sin is. Sin, the Bible says, leads to death all the time. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to destruction. Sin always leads to hell. And God doesn't want death for you. He doesn't want destruction for you. He doesn't want hell for you. Instead of that, God wants you to have life, life eternal, life everlasting, and not just any life, life to the full, life so joyful that our tiny human brains can't understand the joy that God has in store for us on the other side of death. God has so much freedom from all anxieties, from all fears, from all tears, and we will have joy forever. And that's another word we can't understand, forever. I watched a fun little video this week where this guy was trying to make sense of time, and he wanted to show that we as humans have a hard time understanding big distances of time. And so he kind of started, you know, with this little timeline. He's like, here we are, and then he'd shrink that down and add more time to it. And it was like, okay, this is 2016, and after a while, you can't even see the line that is 2016 because he just keeps going farther and farther back. And one of the things he pointed out was that... um, As far away as we are from the Romans, okay, the Romans, you know, Pontius Pilate and all those guys in the Bible, as far away as we are to the Romans, the Romans are that far away from the pyramids. And see, we just think history, old stuff, Romans, pyramids, all of that. And they're like not even in the same category. Um, Let's see, a Tyrannosaurus was as close to going to a Miley Cyrus concert as it was to running into a Stegosaurus. That's how far apart these things exist in like the fossil records and stuff. It's absurd how big time is. And the time that we have existed on this earth is a blip compared to what God has for us in eternity. God wants that to be joyful, everlasting life for you and for me. And sin destroys that. And God loves you and me so much, and he's so concerned more with your heart than your happiness, so that he, w- that he is willing to send even pain into your life, if it will shake you out of that sin, out of that distraction, out of that lesser thing, and look to him 
and follow him and obey him. And that's exactly what he did with the people. And he, he led them back to him in a very powerful way through the prophet Haggai after sending on them some very, very difficult circumstances. And so, here's what I think. If you're here and you're not a Christian, not a believer, and you've always had trouble kind of reconciling that idea of a good God and the reality of a painful world, this is one reason why those two go together. Because God loves us enough that he doesn't want us to get caught in lesser things. I mean, things that, like, things that take the entire focus of our life can, can, are, are, are so small. Things that don't deserve our time. Hobbies, jobs, uh, TV, video games. I love TV. I watch a way too much Netflix, okay? But, but it does not deserve my whole life. It doesn't mean that I should give so much of my life there that I never even exist or understand that God exists. I should never be so entertained by life and the luxuries that we have that I forget to give time to God. And so if God can shake us, shake our life up to show us these things aren't good enough to sustain you so that we look to him, he'll do that. He's so incredibly loving. And so if you're here and you think, you know, I don't think, I, I think I've always had trouble reconciling a, a good God with a painful world. I would just invite you, come talk to me anytime. Um, you can, I'll be kind of out in the back or in the foyer for the rest of the service or anytime through the week. I'd love to kind of help you make sense of that because this is only one reason why pain can exist and why a good God and pain can coexist. But for those of you who are Christians, and if you're a Christian, uh, listen up for just a second. This is one of the reasons why I think getting together every week is such a big deal. Um, and I say every week um, because... That's not really the norm anymore. The norm is, uh, you know, a regular attender might be twice a month. Uh, everybody's kind of attending church a little less. That tends to be the trend. The people who came every week now three times a month, two times a month. The people who came once a month every, you know, quarter, kind of things like that. It's just a, a decline in how regular people are coming to church. But I think we need this as a people every week. Because we get influences away from God every week. We get influences away from God at our job, at the ball field, at home, in the shows we watch. We are always, there's always things nudging us away from God. But how often do we have a time where we come together with other people to intentionally focus our attention and our presence and our hearts on God? That's what this time does for us. We get to come together and realize, okay, there are other people who are going to work and living normal lives and who are busy and hectic just like me and we're trying to find God and we're trying to pursue him and it's encouraging to come here and see other people who are fighting this same fight and walking this same road that you are walking. And I think it's important that we sing songs together and we proclaim, we say with our voices, I love God. He is my focus. He deserves all the honor, all the glory and all the praise and you hear other people proclaiming the same thing because you probably don't get that a lot at work. You probably don't get that a lot on the ball field. I've heard, I've heard Jesus' name said on the ball field, but usually not in the right context, okay? Um, and so I think we need this, not just for the songs, but when we come together and we pray together, do you know what we're acknowledging? When we all pray for one another in our prayer request time at the end or even at the beginning of our service, we are acknowledging that true help in difficult times comes from our Heavenly Father, and when you are out in life and big things happen, it can be easy to forget where your help comes from because life is so scary. And so we come here to remind ourselves, no, my heart goes with God, 
and he is my help in troubled times. Um, I think this is why I really, really would love for everybody to be in a growth group. Uh, I say this all the time. Um, you probably think I'm just like a, a salesman, you know, trying to get you to come to my store or something like that. That is not it. I don't just want to encourage people to get into a growth group so I can brag to my other minister friends that, you know, we have more people in groups now. <laughs> look, look at that. Look how good we're doing. That's, okay, I don't talk to enough of my minister friends, you know, to brag about uh, that. Ben's like really the one I talk to all the time, and he doesn't care what I brag about, turns out. Um, and so, you know, and so I don't just do it to break, but when we come together on a weekly basis, you have friends, that, a smaller group of friends who know what's going on in your life, who know the questions you have and the struggles you're going through that can encourage you toward Christ. It's another anchoring point to your Savior in a world full of distractions. Um, our group, I love it. We have a, a running like Facebook a messenger between kind of everybody in our group, and so we can throw prayer requests out there. We can, we can uh, know when someone's having a hard day that day. Um, when Abby and I found out we had a miscarriage, the first thing I did was I, we had our boys with us at the doctor's appointment, so I had to take the boys out uh, while the doctor talked to her and stuff so they wouldn't be, you know, freaked out and terrified. And so I got them out in the doctor's office in the waiting room, and the first thing I did was I texted our group and just said, can you pray for us? And it was an anchoring moment to know that at that moment I had people praying for us and, our, and the pain we were in, and people who understood the pain we were in. And it brought me in that moment where I needed to be, focused on the God who was with me in all things. Um, and so I think church is so valuable, so incredibly valuable. Obviously, I chose it as my occupation and my calling. And, and I just, I would encourage you, we need this. As believers, we need this as often as we can bear it. Now I know there's vacations and stuff that's going to happen, and nobody's going to get perfect attendance, okay? It just doesn't happen anymore in the church world. Um, but Dan Newman said the other night, um, if you do have perfect attendance, you get one of those mugs sitting out on the table. So if you get perfect attendance, you get a mug. Uh, so, that guy. Um, but I want to... But I do, I just think this is so valuable. We live in a world full of distractions, and, and God in this passage is showing us that our focus on Him is so important, is so valuable. Our hearts being tied to Him is so pivotal to our existence that He is willing to do anything if it will shake us free from our distraction to focus truly, earnestly on Him. So we're going to do one of the things that we do every week to make sure our focus is always right where it should be. We're going to take communion. Now, if our servers want to go uh, prepare, that would be so appreciated. And what we do in communion is we remember that my hope for salvation, my hope for the life that I truly want, it is not in a hobby, it's not in more money, it's not in a job, it's not in day-to-day -day happiness, but my true hope is in Jesus. My hope can even go beyond this life when it hurts, when this life when it's despairing and troublesome, and I have a hope that doesn't just last a blip of time, but I have a hope in Jesus that lasts for all eternity. My hope in Jesus is bigger than the size of my pain and the scary moments of life. Because he takes away the thing that tears us apart. That sin that destroys and kills and leads to hell. Christ takes care of that problem for us. He took all of my sin and your sin on his shoulders on the cross. And he died the punishment for sin. Because sin is so nasty. It's such an evil, awful crime. There must be a punishment for the crime. And Jesus took that punishment so that you and I could walk away without the death that sin deserves. And we can have a renewed, connected relationship with our God that leads to life everlasting. 
And so I don't know where you might have been distracted. I don't know what you might be putting your hope in. I don't know what's going on in your life that might be so scary. You don't know how you can last another day. But I do know that in the midst of whatever it is you're, you're going through, your focus needs to be on your heavenly father and the Savior that came for you. Because if Jesus came to die for you, you don't have to wonder if he's for you or with you. He is absolutely for you and with you. And his hope is for you to have joy and life to the full forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so if you're here and maybe you say, I need, I need to get my focus back as a believer. I need to retune my eyes back to Christ. Or I am going through something and I just need someone to pray with me to help me put my eyes on Christ. I'll be in the back for the rest of the service. I will either be in the foyer if someone snags me, or I will be uh, right in the back at those double doors. And I would just encourage you to come talk to me or come see me at any time through the week. I would love to pray with you and encourage you in the, the God who loves you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of communion that we can remember your goodness, your grace, your love, and your mercy. There is no greater evidence of your love for us than Jesus and what he came to do for us. The fact that as a God, you stepped out of heaven and into humanity and died for us. You took the crime that we deserved. You, the, 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 even though the crimes that we've committed were largely against you, you still came and took the punishment for our evil behavior. And if that isn't an, a message of love for us, I don't know what is. And I just pray, Father, that we would in this time of, uh, as we take the bread and the juice, I pray that we would have our hearts open to the fact that you love us so deeply that there is no sin that can keep us from your love. There is no sin that can separate us from the love and the grace and mercy that you are showing to us through Jesus. And I pray that we would stop being distracted by lesser things and we would put our hope and our attention and our focus on you so that you might become the center point of our life the God that we come to when we're celebrating and the God that we can stand with and lean on when we're heartbroken. Thank you for Jesus and the fact that no matter what's going on in our lives, we have him as our hope. We pray all this in his good and holy name. Amen.